I don't know if any of you have ever applied for a visa to travel, but I will tell you it is absolutely terrifying. The visa application that I applied for in the summer of 2017 kept saying throughout the entire process, once you submit this application, you cannot make any changes whatsoever. And so I read and reread and reread every single one of my answers to make sure I was not, uh, uh, you know, filling anything incorrectly. I wanted to Uh, not only apply, but also get accepted. And so I walked through each of my answers with my parents on the telephone. They are here. You can ask them afterwards about how nervous I was because I really wanted this application to go through. I was living in Atlanta at the time, and I asked my hostess to also read through all of my answers to make sure I didn't have any mistakes. And after I called them, and after I talked to uh, my host, I caught the silliest, most absurd mistake of all, I misspelled my name. My name. I didn't fill out other information incorrectly. I misspelled my own name. My name is Mitchell, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L, and I spelled it M-I-T-H-C-E-L-L, Mythcell, over and over throughout the document. And so I went back and I was like, okay, fortunately I found this very ridiculous error and I'm going to change it. So I went back, made sure I actually spelled my name correctly. And so I went through the process all all over again, and then I pressed submit. And no joke, as soon as I pressed submit, it says, you know, kind of shows all that information finalized, and I had misspelled my name again. I had mistyped my name a second time. And so I I pretty much saw my whole life crashing before my eyes. I thought, I'm not going to get approved for this visa. I'm not going to keep the job I had where I was supposed to go. I would have to date long distance with Allison. She would probably break up with me, and then I would die. Um, (laughs) I'm also guilty of being very dramatic, but this was my thought process. I had to call the visa office in the UK, uh, which made a deal with a third-party organization, and that third-party organization really wanted to make as much money as possible from all this, and so I paid an ungodly fee that I cannot speak about, Uh, but they said, just go back, do a whole new submission, and then pay for it. Once you pay for the visa application, then it's official, so I had to do that whole process again. Uh, I got accepted, and it turns out I'm still alive to this day, so everything turned out okay. But today, uh, we are going to talk about the plans that we make. And I know that it is very common for preachers uh, to talk about God's plan and our plan. Uh, You've probably heard a lot of sayings like, you know, we make plans and God laughs. You may have heard the, the proverb, God closes a door, but then he opens a window. And I think it's I think it's important that we actually talk about this, but I want us to go a little bit deeper than the surface. I really wonder, as a person who is a planner, does God really think that all the plans we make are ridiculous? Does God actually want us to be totally spontaneous? Does God want elders and ministers at this church to lead without a strategy, without goals, without vision, without imagination for what this church could be? Does God want Christian parents to simply let life happen to their children while trying to raise them in our faith? My first response, my gut reaction to all those questions is no, but I want to be driven by a biblical view of God. And so what we've been doing is looking at this book of Ruth to to know how God is present in our day-to-day lives because we know that God is present, we just want to know how. 
And last week, we talked about the idea of God's providence, that God orchestrates serendipitous events. He gives us good gifts that we can't explain otherwise than that they were from him. He makes these unexpected surprises happen in our lives that time out perfectly. And what we often think is, quote, just a coincidence is actually just God being inconspicuous, working behind the scenes for our good. And I think this chapter is so important to talk about the plans we make in life because the whole chapter is structured around Naomi's plan. If you look back in chapter 2 of Ruth, there's a very strict kind of structure to the story. Uh, Ruth makes a plan, she has an encounter with Boaz, and then she goes back to talk to Naomi about this encounter. And the same exact thing happens in chapter 3. Naomi makes a plan. Ruth and Boaz have an encounter, and then she goes back to Naomi to report on it. There are four chapters in this very small book, and two of them are dedicated to people making plans, and we see what happens with those plans. Now, Naomi's plan is simple. She says, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, uh, some scholars think that Uh, Ruth has probably worked the barley harvest for two months now. And here's the thing. Once the harvest is over, these two women, Ruth and Naomi, will have no recourse for themselves. Naomi knows that she's not going to be around forever. She's an aging widow. And when she's gone, Ruth is going to have no connection in the land of Israel. And so when she says, my daughter, I must find a home for you, she's not joking around. This is urgent. This is an emergency. Ruth is an immigrant in a foreign country trying to glean the leftovers in a field for her and her mother-in-law. This is not sustainable. This is not a long-term solution. So Naomi says, I know a long-term solution, and his name is Boaz. So what you're going to do tonight is you're going to find him on on the threshing floor winnowing barley. Now, I don't know how Naomi knows this about uh, Boaz. Maybe that's just what the men in her clan did. Maybe it's their tradition or common practice. But basically what she says is he's going to be on the threshing floor. He's going to be winnowing barley. And this is a long and exhausting process. At the end of that, he's going to be very hungry. And when he eats, he is going to pass out because he is going to be exhausted. And so what Naomi is saying to Ruth is that you need to find Boaz in a good mood. If you are going to present yourself to him, you want him to have a full stomach and getting some well-deserved shut-eye. And you need to present yourself as available to him. She says, wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. This is the language of someone who wants to get married. Basically, Naomi's saying, you need to transform in his eyes from what would be a grieving widow in mourning to be available to get married. And Ruth completely agrees with this plan. She does everything that her mother-in-law tells her to do. She heads straight to the threshing floor, and everything that Naomi says about uh, Boaz come true. Apparently, the men and their clan are very predictable. Ruth comes upon the scene. Boaz is tired. He's, he's finished eating and drinking. He's in good spirits, and then he lies down to go to sleep. And then we read a very strange verse to modern uh, readers. It says, Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now, some scholars, if you 
uh, read some of their commentaries on this passage. They, I think they kind of want this passage to be a little bit more scandalous than it is. They think it's a euphemism for some sexual encounter. But here's the thing. The Bible knows how to tell us if men and women sleep together. Does it all the time. It says Adam knew Eve and they conceived and they bore a son. It happens all the time. This man knew that woman. They conceived. They bore a son. The Bible knows how to tell us. The Bible is not scared of the topic. But it says this very strange phrase. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. I think if you ask yourself, if you kind of take a step back from our modern perspective and you ask yourself, how does a poor, foreign, Moabite widow take the initiative with a respected Israelite man, it's actually more complicated than you think, right? If she approaches Boaz in public, she may cause scandal or gossip. It might ruin his chance to go about the proper customs. If she is seen approaching him in the middle of the night, they could think that she's acting like a prostitute. So the uncovering of the feet on the threshing floor is just kind of strange to us, but I think it's just practical. How do you get an exhausted man to wake up after he's fallen asleep and tired and full of dinner? You get his feet cold. That's how simple it is. It's in the middle of the night. You take off his blanket, he gets cold, and he wakes up, and that's exactly what happens. It's not as scandalous as scholars want it to be. She is just showing initiative, but also restraint. She's, she is making the first move on Boaz, but she's not seducing him. She's not being scandalous. And what he does is exactly what uh, Naomi predicts. He wakes up. He can tell a woman is there, but he doesn't know who it is. And she says, I'm Ruth. I'm your servant Ruth. So spread the, garment of, the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer of our family. Ruth is doing something really smart here. She's actually quoting Boaz back to him. Because in the previous chapter, he said, when he saw Ruth out in the field, he said, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. If you know about ancient wedding uh, ceremonies for Israelites, this is what an Israelite husband would do. He would spread his garment over his wife. The Lord says in the prophets that he spreads his garment over his bride Israel. So basically, Ruth is saying to Boaz, spread your garment over me. Marry me. And Boaz says, that sounds like a great plan. He loves this idea. And he says, I will fulfill my role as the kinsman redeemer. But there's a tiny obstacle that we need to address. There is another. There is another guy. And he is a closer relative than I am. And Boaz is such a good guy that he's not going to skirt around these customs. He says, look, my plan is to do exactly what you say. To marry you, to redeem your your family with with Naomi. But you need to stay here for the night. And I'm going to check with this other guy if he wants to do his duty as a kinsman redeemer. And if he does it, then good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. And he actually does something really romantic in this chapter. It's very, you know, strange to modern ears. But he asks for Ruth's shawl. And women at the time, most Israelite moms, would actually carry their babies in their shawl. And so what he does is he, he takes her shawl and he fills it with grain. And it's almost like a sign Maybe one day this shawl will have 
a child of ours in it. Maybe one day we'll be together, but he has to do, he has to follow the proper customs and do what the the customs say. So, after all that story, we don't read a single thing in this chapter that says God says this or God does this. So how in the world is God at work in this story? We don't see God acting. We don't see God performing miracles. He doesn't part Red Seas or heal the sick. It just seems like a kind of plain and mundane story. So what does it mean to us? Now, I think that God is always at work, even in a story like this. He is constantly working good for the sake of these people. But he also loves to include their plan in his. So, sometimes, Naomi makes, at at the beginning of this story, she makes a plan, and God has no problem including it in his. So, I think there's a balance that we have to hold from chapter 2 and chapter 3. In chapter 2, I think we see God's providence. He is at work. He is doing things that Ruth has no idea that he's doing. He's giving gifts to his people, and at the same time, they're making plans, and he is blessing those plans. And I think this matters to the question of what does God believe and value about our plans, because I think God wants wise people. I think he wants people who have the prudence to make good judgment calls. He wants people like Naomi who have strategies, who actually realize that not everything in life works out perfectly for us. I don't think God wants us to be driven by the winds of circumstance. The Apostle James describes people who should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. That's a quote. And he said, who are like waves of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. The letter to the Ephesians says, a mark of immaturity is to be tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there. I don't think God always laughs at our plans. He often blesses them. He doesn't want foolish people who pretend like life is this prepaved road without U-turns or dead ends. And at the same time, God doesn't want a bunch of control freaks. And that's a really hard thing for me. I told you the story of me applying for this visa, but that's actually pretty representative for my life. I can get really scared, really nervous, really freaked out when things aren't going my way. And one of the most challenging passages in the Bible for me is is chapter 16 in the book of Acts. Paul and these other missionaries want to take the gospel to modern-day Turkey. You'd think God would be all on board for this. They come to the border of Turkey. They try to enter. And then in Acts chapter 16, it says, The Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. And when I read that story, I think, well, the next verse better say how and why. How did the Holy Spirit tell them not to enter? How did, what, why did the Holy Spirit not want them to take the gospel to Turkey? But it doesn't. It just says the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. And for control freaks like me, and maybe there's one or two other people in this room who struggle with this, that's a hard verse. Because for whatever reason, it wasn't God's plan at that time in those conditions. And if Paul were like me, maybe he would have tried to force his plan and make it happen, but he doesn't. He and the other missionaries simply move on. So God wants this balance in his people who are open to his plan, but he also can bless their plans. When I was talking with Ben Stewart about this uh, sermon this week, 
Uh, I wanted to be clear <laughs> that not all of our plans are pre-approved by God. Um, one of the most uh, depressing stories in the Old Testament is David and Bathsheba. Uh, David sees Bathsheba. Uh, he wants her. He wants her for himself. And he calls for a servant to bring her to him. And this very bold servant who doesn't get enough credit, he says, by the way, just so you know, I just wanted to mention this detail, she is the wife of Uriah. That's a bold move for a servant to make when a king wants a woman and tells that servant to go get that woman. He is waving this big, big red flag saying, this is a bad idea. This is not part of God's plan. And David does exactly what he wants anyways. So, of course, just because God blesses some of our plans does not mean all of our plans are in accord with his. One verse really uh, stood out to me when I was preparing for this sermon. It says, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Psalm 33 says, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations and he frustrates the plans of the people. Sometimes we want something that is not a part of God's plan and God shuts it down. And yet, at the same time, there are plans that we make like Naomi's that he includes in his plan. Proverbs 16.9 says, In their hearts humans plan their course, and the Lord establishes their steps. In Proverbs 16.3, it says, Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plan. Sometimes God is so powerful and so loving that he takes our little tiny human plans and incorporates them into his. And that is good news because that means God's providence doesn't mean we are puppets. God's sovereignty doesn't mean you sit back and do nothing. God's rule and reign over all creation doesn't make you just relax into apathy and disconnection. And I think we see parents do this all the time, just in a smaller way. So both of my brothers are older than me. One is seven years older, one is five years older. They're both married and they both have four kids, okay? So I got a lot of uncle experience before I ever became a dad. And one thing that I loved seeing my brothers do, they do this all the time. One of their kids will come up to them and say something that they want. So for example, my nephew might say, dad, I want to go outside and play with my friends. And my brother wants two things at the exact same time. He wants them to clean up their toys and he wants them to go play with their friends outside. So what he says to his son is, you have two options. You can either clean up your toys and go play with your friends outside, or you don't play with your friends outside. And my nephews, you can see it on their face. They always think, dad is giving me exactly what I want, the fool. Like they think that they have played him, and, and they think they have come up with this genius plot, and he's just given them magically what they want. And so my brother is smiling because he gets exactly what he wants, and he gives his son what he wants. And I think God does this all the time with us. He is a good heavenly father who is so powerful. He takes our little tiny plans and incorporates them into his better plan. Uh, one of my life goals is to read as much as possible from this guy. This is Augustine of Hippo. He was a North African theologian who preached during the fall of the Roman Empire. And just to wrap your head around what he had to deal with as a preacher and as a minister to God's people, 
Imagine if our country was invaded by another country, we lost that war, and then our country was broken up into different parts. I mean, he was watching the fall of the Roman Empire, something that people thought could never happen. They called Rome the eternal city. And so there was so much war and death and chaos and confusion, and he had to navigate this as a minister caring for his people. And some people in his church kept saying, well, you know, the fall of the, of the empire was fate. Capital F, fate. Like a predetermined force that made this happen. And he wrote this, and these words have stuck out to me ever since reading it. He says, without a doubt, the kingdoms of men are established by divine providence. God knows all things before they happen. And God knows that we do, by our free will, all that would not happen without our volition. He says, we recognize a God who is supreme and true, and therefore we confess his supreme power and foreknowledge. But we are not afraid that what we do is not voluntary. I think this quote is so important to what we're talking about today. I think this matters to each and every one of us. Augustine doesn't passively accept this vague force out there called fate. But he also doesn't deny the power and providence of God. He teaches that God is almighty, that his providence is real, and that what each and every one of us do matters. And that's the gospel. The good news that God is present in your day-to-day life. It is true that sometimes we make plans and God laughs. They are ridiculous. It is true that sometimes we make plans and they are totally against God's will and God shuts them down. But it's also true that God can take our tiny little human plans and include them in his. He is writing such a good story, such a grand story, that he includes all little schemes we make in our lives in them. And that's what it means for God to be a heavenly father who is so powerful and so loving he gets exactly what he wants and by grace can give us what we most deeply want. These two chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 3, don't go against each other. They're not pitted against each other. God is providential in both chapters just as much as Ruth and Naomi make their plans. And that's true for each and every one of us today. Let's pray. Father, we know that we can plot and scheme all sorts of things that go against your will. We know that we can try And do our best to impose our will on the world. And we know that's not good. We ask for your Holy Spirit to help us discern those times, repent from those plans, and change our ways. But we're also amazed and astounded and in awe at your power. That you're able to work behind the scenes, that you're able to be inconspicuous. That even when we don't see your work, you're you're always at work. And somehow, as a good heavenly father, you take our plans and fold them into your plan. Naomi didn't say that she knew exactly what she wanted. But she made a plan and you, you blessed it. 
We ask, Father, that you give us eyes to see and a mind to discern which is which. When we make plans that you're blessing and when we make plans that you don't want for us. We ask for wisdom. It takes wisdom from your Holy Spirit to know the plans that you bless. We thank you for being such a loving and powerful Heavenly Father that you include us. Paul even calls us co-workers with Christ. And it is such an honor, such a privilege to have that title, to have that name, that we know you include us in the grand story that you are writing. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.